Welcome to a new episode of Trump Watch Sussex. My name is Melissa Milevsky. I'm a lecturer in history here at the University of Sussex. And today our episode is going to be on Trump and corruption. I'm joined today by Professor Dan Huff, who has served as the director of the Sussex Center for the Study of Corruption um, and is now currently the head of the politics department here at the University of Sussex. He's written several books on corruption and has also consulted um, with various governments around the world about corruption and anti-corruption efforts. So Dan, I thought we could start today by thinking about what exactly is corruption? This has been something that you've studied as an academic subject. How, how do kind of scholars in your field define corruption? Well, corruption is one of those issues that can be defined in a, in a multitude of ways, and the more academics you ask for a definition, the more definitions you will get. That There isn't any real consensus on um, an, a cast iron definition, but we do have four things that always come up. Corruption's always deliberate. There's always some sort of abuse. There's always a public role involved, and there's always some sort of private gain. So if any process has got those four things, then generally people tend to agree that it's uh, that it's corrupt. Could you give us an example of how you might assess something that might have um, see if it has those four things? Well, many of the things that we traditionally understand as corrupt are easily definable as corrupt. If you pay a bribe for a um, a contract to build a bridge, to build a hospital, then you're deliberately paying someone some money to abuse their position and give you a contract from which you're likely to gain financially. So the four elements are pretty clear there. The more challenging area comes when people bring in their own morals and their own norms. Corruption is generally what other people do. Corruption is rarely what you and your friends may do. To give one example, if, you're, um, if you think back to the Third Reich and to the Nazi era, imagine you're, uh, you have the case of a Nazi death camp guard and that death camp guard has taken a thousand rice marks from a Jewish family to let them go. Is there a deliberate act? Yes, he's taken money. Is there abuse of a role? Yes, Nazi death camp guards are not supposed to take money from Jewish prisoners to let them go. Is there private gain? There certainly is, a thousand rice marks. And does he have a public role? Yes, he's a civil servant in the Nazi state. So that's a corrupt act. But the vast majority of people would, I hope, say that it's a very good thing you know, and respect due to the guard for, for helping people to flee this horrific situation. So the problem comes not so much in pinpointing processes, but judging them. And people often judge corruption on whether they like the person involved or not. And that's where the problems start. That's all very interesting. So another kind of question along these lines, and it's something that I believe that you've thought a bit about, is... Why do people in government actually engage in corruption? Is there a sense that they're going to be able to get away with it, um, that nobody's going to notice? What kind of is the, the self-interest that's kind of motivating people to engage in this? Well, that's one of the big questions that, that's driven corruption research over the years. Why do people do it and how can we stop them doing it? I, I would say that 
the vast majority of research, research starts from the perspective that humans are rational. Humans take decisions based on an, analyzing the costs and the benefits. Now, they may not sit down one day and say, right, today's the day I, I make a list of costs and a list of benefits. But everything we do um, will involve us working out whether it's worth our while to do it. Now, that is seen to be the starting point for understanding why corruption happens in government. If there's little oversight, if there's the opportunity to have a significant private gain, no one's going to catch you, then the assumption is that humans being weak souls as we are will eventually succumb and uh, indulge in corrupt acts. The interesting questions, though, are actually why do some people not indulge? If we're all rational actors who will take advantage of situations that lend themselves to us, then we, we need to explain why some people just don't do that. And of course, the answer there is about norms. For some people, it's just not an appropriate response. And there's a, there was a remarkable study done in New York um, around 20 years ago involving parking tickets and diplomats uh, around New York when the United Nations sank. Anybody who spent any time in New York around the time the UN Assembly sits will know that parking is an absolute nightmare. There is nowhere to park. The traffic is, uh, is chock-a-block. If you're a diplomat, of course, the problems are not so um, not so obvious because you can park where you like. You can get a, a parking ticket um, and that parking ticket doesn't need to be paid. Why? Because you're a diplomat, you have diplomatic immunity. Two very creative economists got hold of all of the unpaid parking tickets by diplomats over a five-year period and looked at where these diplomats were from. And they found there was a really strong correlation between diplomats who came from high corruption countries parking badly and a high correlation between diplomats who came from low corruption countries parking appropriately. And so it was clear that culture was traveling. If you can get away with abusing your public role for private gain, in this sense, parking where on earth you liked, because no one could prosecute you, you would do it. And if you, on the contrary, if you came from Sweden or the United Kingdom or one of other 22 other countries, then you got used to doing the right thing. And you did so. You would park a mile away and get wet in the rain uh, when you're walking back to your meeting, simply because it was the right thing. So that goes against the rational actor model. Some people say costs, benefits, rationality. Others say it's about socialization, teaching people to do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. The debate's ongoing, and I don't think they'll ever be genuinely solved. That's fascinating. I lived in New York um, City for, for many years, so I know just how hard it is to park um, in New York. So let's bring Donald Trump um, into this. So we're exactly kind of in these academic definitions of corruption um, that you and other scholars have developed. Where does Donald Trump um, fit into this? How do you make sense of, of him as a scholar of corruption? Well, Donald Trump, he is the gift that keeps on giving in terms of corruption analysis. And I guess in many other uh, um, sort of branches of political science as well, because there is so much about what Donald Trump does that provokes us and pokes us and makes us think about our long held assumptions. One of those things is that the, Donald Trump's great skill is that he doesn't break the law very frequently. He does things people don't like, or he goes against conventions. He goes against norms. He's a great exponent of bending the law as opposed to breaking it. And this leads us to one of the big problems of corruption analysis. The vast majority of corruption is legal. Okay. Only a fool breaks the law regularly because they know that normally brings with it penalties, whether it be prison, whether it be fine, fines, whether it be reputational. 
Donald Trump um, really pushes this to the extreme in that he does things that many people might not like, but don't fit into the traditional legal understanding of what corruption is. And by that, I mean, would break corruption laws. He does things that morally, um, ethically, people may have problems with, but ultimately that that has no place in, in a courtroom. So he makes us think about the way that corruption is about judgments. It is about norms. It is about appropriateness. And people like um, the Donald push the boundaries in ways that for us is really interesting. Could you perhaps give us an example of the way that he is is doing this, kind of doing things that are kind of legally um, acceptable, but perhaps um, could be seen by some as, as corrupt? Sure. The, the, the most straight, I mean, Donald Trump's a, a complex character as well. There are lots of dimensions to this, uh, to, to his public profile. But the one example that I find most revealing is to do with his, his so-called Winter White House. Um, Mare Lago, one of his many uh, resorts where he, he spends quite a lot of time, particularly during the winter, because it's a bit warmer in the south than it is in the north. Donald Trump um, charges, uh, Don, the, the Winter White House belongs to him, he charges a fee if you want to be a member of that club. And that fee has gone up exponentially since he became president. Many people I need to curry favour with the current president, have joined Mar-a-Lago. They're paying uh, to, to be members of the Donald's Club. And that clearly curries favour with him. He likes that. He likes to feel that he's the centre of attention. But his club, which he owns, is now making significant amounts of money. We're talking hundreds of thousands of pounds more, arguably millions of pounds more, simply because Donald Trump um, has put it in the, in the media glare, he continues to use it and people continue to want to join it to look like they're, uh, uh, they're, they're working with rather than against um, uh, uh, the president. So he is gaining from that. He's got a public role. Um, many would argue he's abusing it to, to, um, to gain financially. And of course, this is deliberate. He knows that by talking about and going to Mar-a-Lago, it becomes a, an object of, of fascination in, in some parts. So it fits the bill. There's a deliberate abuse of a public role for private gain. But is it illegal? Absolutely not. There is nothing at all illegal about what Donald Trump has done. It's what uh, uh, Dan Kaufman, a very well-known corruption analyst, would call legal corruption. We don't like it, but we don't like it because of the norms that shape how we think rather than the process that we're actually analysing. That's all very, very interesting. And one thing that I'm thinking about kind of as you're talking is you mentioned kind of the importance of culture to all of this. And one thing that is oftentimes in the news these days is this idea that there's this new kind of culture of, of corruption um, in the White House and the way that kind of a number of kind of, his, of Trump's kind of cabinet officials have been accused of abusing expense accounts. Is, so I was wondering if you have any kind of thoughts as kind of thinking about how a culture of corruption can be analyzed, um, how it might be developed, how it can be stopped? Well, I think if I, if I knew how to stop corruption, I, I probably wouldn't be doing this podcast and I'd be very rich and, and on a beach in the Cayman Islands. But, um, but so, so I think that question is, is very difficult. What, one thing we do know about um, cultures of corruption is the word culture is not very helpful because it's so big and it, it, there's so many things involved. Um, if we're going to make serious analytical sense of corruption, we need to be more specific and talk about specific processes that are of interest. And that's often one of the failings of the anti-corruption movement. Anyone who says they're gonna sweep away corruption is either lying or they're naive or they're both. 
because it's impossible to do that in, in one short period of history. You have to be very specific about what you're doing. And only then can you be judged on whether you've achieved the aims that you've, that you've set. However, um, the context of, of the White House at the moment clearly shapes norms in a way that things are more acceptable now than they, than they were in the past. Things such as blind trust. It's pretty clear that some members of Donald Trust family don't understand what blind trusts are. Now, if that's the case, you are sending out messages as to what is appropriate um, behaviour for the people around you. So certainly context matters. But in terms of actually reforming things, I think we need to be as specific as we possibly can about what the problem is, why it's there, and only then can we think about doing things to try and counteract. So if the problem was expense accounts, um, for instance, what would be a way to kind of identify that and kind of work to counteract it? Well, expense accounts is, is something that as a Brit, we, we know quite a lot about because 10 years ago, we had, of course, a big expenses scandal in our UK parliament when well over 200 MPs ended up uh, paying money back because they were, um, they were uneasy with the expenses claims that they'd made. But of course, very few of those MPs had broken the rules of the House of Commons. I mean, even fewer had broken the laws of the land. Um, so again, it's about what is normatively acceptable. One of the ironies of the UK case is that our expenses system was thoroughly reformed after the 2008 scandal. Listeners may remember that um, duck houses were built in ponds and, and moats were cleaned and the British taxpayer paid for all this stuff. Now that doesn't happen anymore. But the new regime, with all of its institutional, um, all the institutional frameworks that were created around it, costs about double the old regime, uh, what the old regime did. So we might have a cleaner system of expenses, but it's double as costly. Now, if that's fine, then so be it. But what we've done is actually built in extra costs to, to the system. In terms of the US expenses system, you've simply got to be clear what is acceptable, why it's acceptable, and why um, certain things go beyond the pale. It's about clarity. And we didn't have that in the UK before 2008. We had a very vague system that was basically built on trust. Now, you can't build a system that is perfect, but you have to balance trusting people to make the right decisions with a degree of oversight to catch the really bad guys out. You can use information technology to do this, and there are a number of schemes around the world that do, but in the end, there's always judgment involved. People will find ways of keeping within the, the legal rules, but arguably challenging the spirit of them. So in the end, judgment is required. And that means that people will always disagree. Thank you very much. I want to turn now to thinking about the scholarship of corruption, which you've mm -hmm. been an important part of. And has, has kind of the volume of kind of stories about corruption, um, in my view, has really kind of increased um, while Donald Trump has been in office. It's been a real focus. And I'm wondering kind of if that's shaped, kind of influenced the study of corruption um, as you see it. Well, the story is a bit, a bit older than Donald Trump um, in that until about the 1960s and 1970s, the academic analysis of corruption was very thin on the ground. Corruption was hard to pin down. Um, it's hard to get data. I mean, how do you interview people? You know, tell me how corrupt you are. It doesn't work. So, so people were often put off analysing corruption because it was simply hard to rigorously approach the subject. Now, the, the, the sheer weight of scandals through the 70s and 80s, starting arguably with, with Watergate, prompted um, a change of heart there. The methodological challenges were, were not disregarded, but they were faced down. 
and we found more and more academics were taking note of, um, you know, of, of the indiscretions that were happening and trying to theorize about them. That really caught on in Europe in the 1990s, um, and it came back to the United States, um, arguably with, with Donald Trump, and, and Donald Trump has, has given this whole movement a shot in the arm. The, the challenge again, though, <clears throat> is about bringing norms and values back in. Corruption was about transactions before. It was a transactional event. Now it's not. And corruption doesn't happen through the giving of money in brown envelopes. You know, it might do in Hollywood films, but it, it doesn't in reality. It's a complex process involving normative judgments. And Trump really highlights that. And he's a really, really useful tool for corruption scholars because he, he makes us aware of how important norms are in our understanding of this. And that goes against much of what American political science does. 60% of all political scientists work in the United States. That's, you know, that's the majority of political scientists in the world. They have a very positivistic stance on this. They want to, to find the truth. They want to test out very rigorously hypotheses to try and work out what is actually going on. Um, Trump challenges that. And Trump really makes us think in more interpretist um, ways. It doesn't mean that there's going to be a revolution in political science because of Trump, but it does mean that he makes he makes what we thought we knew a little less defensible, and it prompts us to think arguably about unpacking these these complex uh, concepts in new and challenging ways. Is there a specific angle, kind of, of corruption where you where you kind of believe he particularly kind of causes? Um, causes political scientists to really kind of rethink some of these um, these norms? Well, Trump is a convention buster. He doesn't do things by um, in the same way that others do. And for better or worse, he really makes us think about what, we, what the rules of the game are. And like in all good games, some of the rules are written down. You know, the great game of football, you know, we know it's 11 v 11. We know there's an offside rule. We know the referee takes decisions. But an awful lot of what really matters in football has got nothing whatsoever to do with the law. It's the way you play the game. It's the way you try and score goals. It's the way you might dive on the floor like Neymar does. You know, there's a lot of appropriateness in terms of the way the game is played. Trump challenges all of that. Trump does things in a totally different way. And that doesn't make analysing him easier, but it brings into really sharp relief how poor corruption analysis has been at, uh, at understanding the real world. It's been quite good at theorising even if those theories are, are imperfect. But in, in understanding what makes the real world tick, we've been lacking. And Trump's, Trump's really revealed that to us. That's very interesting. I just want to end um, by going back to what we talked a little bit about earlier, is this question of, of kind of combating corruption. I know that you've worked with some governments um, in the past. And kind of are there kind of additional kind of concrete um, ways that corruption can be combated. I know you mentioned kind of identifying kind of specific things. Um, is there anything else that you would add to that? Well, when I, when I um, talk to, to, to people in power, not that I do it that regularly, but when I do, um, they inevitably ask me what needs to be done. And my answer is always the same. I don't know. Um, and the reason I don't know is there are no one size fits all approaches. And that's, that's, that's in many ways a, a trite thing to say, but it's important. The international agreements that look to try and help us fight corruption are, um, are one dimensional. It looks very much like people do things the Western way. And yet we know that doesn't work. So there is no box full of anti-corruption 
methods that we just pick the most appropriate one from. That, that's not the way to go. We know that doesn't work. What we have to think about is what we want to achieve and how we're going to get there. And now ultimately, some of the most successful anti-corruption initiatives have got nothing whatsoever to do with corruption. They're to do with getting governance right. They're to do with enabling people to defend themselves a little bit more, to creating bigger spaces where people can defend their interests without the fear that uh, they may be penalised for doing so. And in many parts of the world, if you defend your interests, you could well end up in big trouble, uh, it, you know, as far as losing your life. Uh, um, so, so we need to try and help spaces create, uh, to help to create spaces where um, ultimately people can defend their own interests. Now, th th what that means in in the US uh, will be different to what it means in the UK, to what it means in Bangladesh, to what it means in Brighton, to what it means in Hayward's Heath, what it means in Withdean. You know, each context will have its specific challenges. So we need to move away from thinking solutions are national to thinking they are context specific and the context really will change over time. To give but one example, we know, we know that transparency and accountability, two buzzwords that always come up in terms of fighting corruption, we know they're important, but in what form we create accountability, well, that really will change from setting to setting. And it's worth remembering that sometimes what works in one place can do the, exactly the opposite in another. So it's about context, it's about nuance, and it's about understanding the problems you're, you're really trying to solve. Thank you so much. That was a fascinating insight into how the scholarship of corruption can help us better understand Trump um, and his administration. Thank you so much for tuning in to Trump Watch Sussex. We hope you'll join us for another episode again soon.